In 2014, the state-owned French railway system purchased 2,000 trains at a cost of about $20 billion, only to find that the trains were too large for the platform that they were to travel on. They had to adjust multiple tracks in order to meet the dimensions of the trains, costing them millions and millions of dollars. This was known as one of the great miscalculations that are often made even among engineers, but I understand this was wrong dimensions given to the company. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul is going to use a Greek word that means miscalculation. Colossians 2, verse 3, verse 4. And this I say, lest any man beguile you with enticing words. The Greek word for beguile is to misreckon, miscalculate by deception. Now, in our illustration, there was no deception. It was simply a miscalculation. But here, there were false teachers knocking at the door at the church at Colossae. They had not yet entered, but Paul was deeply concerned. He saw and heard from Epaphras their order and steadfastness of their faith in Christ, but these Gnostic heresies and these Jewish heresies were pushing on the doors of the church. Paul is writing in verses 1 through 8 in particular, giving the overview of what he's going to dive into more specifically in the latter part of this chapter concerning these heresies that the church at Colossae, nor us, would make a great miscalculation. A miscalculation concerning the sufficiency of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in this treasure house repository of Christ, whom we have all knowledge, all redemption, all sanctification, everything we need, in Him, Paul says in verse 10, we are complete. We are complete. That's often the miscalculation we make, isn't it? We look at our budget, we look at the numbers, we make the calculations, we get the sum, the total, and we look at it and we say, something is missing. Something is not there. I need so much more than what the numbers come out to be. Every advertisement, every social media post, every billboard, every neon sign is flashing to suggest to you, you need so much more. And if only you had it, your life would be so much more fulfilling, so much more complete than what it is. This is the Gnostic heresy. They were offering a billboard of knowledge through these elite teachers that said, yes, Christ is good, but you need so much more. And we have it. We can give it to you. Yes, we've written in our books, but you can't access them. You can't understand them. But if you just come to us, we can tell you what you need in order to be complete, to live a full life. And such error is still here today, isn't it? may not have the fancy Greek word Gnosticism connected to it, but all over the planet, Christians are being duped, deluded, and deceived into thinking. We need more. Are you making the great miscalculation? It may not be costing you money, but it's costing you 
fellowship. It's costing you to be rooted, grounded in Christ. It's costing you in such a way that it could be moving you from the hope of the gospel, deceiving through a great miscalculation that you really need more than Christ. The great message of the book of Colossians is this. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. If the book of Ephesus is emphasizing the body of the church, the body, the church which is connected to the head, and it is here in Colossians, Paul is emphasizing the the head of the church. Not to the exclusion of the body, but the head, the supremacy of the head, which we've seen in Colossians 1, Jesus Christ. Now Paul is working through in the next chapter. He's saying these words so that you won't make the great miscalculation concerning Christ and His fullness that resides in you, and that you will receive, verse 6, you receive Christ Jesus the Lord and keep walking in Him, rooted, built up, abounding in the faith as you've been taught, and abounding therein in thanksgiving. So this is where Paul is going today. We'll just look at the first five verses, and we're going to center our attention on verse 1, or our title from there, Paul's great conflict. Paul's great conflict he's going to share is related somehow to them not being beguiled or miscalculating who they are in Christ. And of course, in chapter 3, he'll work out more details of who we are in Christ. You see, the world assigns worth and value based on performance, status, reputation. Power, possessions. But Paul says your worth is assigned by who you're attached to in Christ. That's your identity. All these other identities that the world will make you think if you don't have, you're missing something. Paul is bending over backwards to get the church to see you have an identity in the fullness of Christ that means Your worth is not found in yourself or in the world or what the world may assign to you or what you can do in any kind of performance. But in Christ alone, you have been assigned the fullness of God and He resides in you and you are complete. To be full also means to diffuse, the Greek word in verse 10. So only as the church experiences the aroma of the diffusing grace of Christ inwardly through that fullness does that diffusion begin to work itself out and spread out in the church and in the community. Only as we recognize our attachment to this fullness does this diffusing aroma affect your marriage and your family and your work and everywhere you go. So that's where Paul is going. Let's begin in verse 2. We'll just work our way hopefully through the first five Verses. Paul says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, so that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, the first three verses, lest you misreckon, miscalculate. So Paul gives us three verses, and he says, I'm telling you this so that no one will beguile you. 
with plausible words, enticing words, or as we defined last Sunday, misleadingly attractive words. Misleading, but attractive. Plausible sounds reasonable, but wrong in error. So a few questions here. Number one, how is it that knowing Paul's great conflict knits their hearts together in love and gives them comfort? You see that from the Greek word hina in verse 2. Again, so that I'm telling you, I want you to know my great conflict for you, Laodicea, and all those that haven't seen my face, so that their hearts might be comforted and, implication, their hearts might be joined, coalesced, driven, knit together, compacted in love. How does Paul's conflict do that for them or us today? Question number two, not necessarily in this order. The prepositions in verse two indicate that when we're being knit together in love, it's leading unto something. He uses the same preposition twice. Unto and to, same Greek word. How is it that knitting together in love leads to understanding and knowledge? I thought it was the other way around. If you understand something and you know something about God, then it leads you to love. Not here. When your hearts are comforted being knit together, it leads to all riches of full assurance of understanding, and it leads to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How does love lead to that? Question number three. How does the first three verses keep us from being beguiled? Because that's what Paul says. I'm saying this in verse 4. I'm telling you about this love. I'm telling you about my conflict. I'm telling you about the assurance of understanding and the mystery of God. I'm telling you about the sufficiency of Christ in wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this, lest you make the great miscalculation and you be led away from your completeness in Jesus. All right, so first, what is Paul's conflict? That's the first question, right? He uses the word here, agon, which is the shortened form of the word agonizomai, which we looked at last Sunday in verse 29. He uses the word striving, agonizomai, but here it's agon. It can mean first related to uh, the word agonizomai, which is struggle, wrestling. Uh, Agon can mean first the place where the contest takes place, like Jordan Hare, Bryant Denny. Those are... Agones in the Greek word. It's the stadium where all the fans gather for a game. It can also mean the game itself, the contest, the race, the fight, the battle, the match. Paul uses this word, or the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 12 says, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the agon, race, which is set before us. It's a noun, the race. Now we've seen Paul's conflict, his, his race, uh, his struggle, in three ways. First we saw it in verse 24 uh, four of chapter 1. 
He said, who now rejoice in my suffering for you, to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ and my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church. So he's suffering, he's wrestling against persecution, against being in prison, which when he writes this letter, he's in prison, uh, Colossians 4. And so there's, there's the conflict, the wrestling that's taking place with suffering that the apostle endured, and he rejoiced in it because of the reason that he was suffering. Secondly, we mentioned the word in verse 29 of chapter 1, wherein to also labor, striving according to his working. So he's striving against his own flesh. He's striving against the enemies of the gospel. He is striving. He's agonizomai. He's laboring. And his labor is one of constant striving and struggle. He has all these things working against his labor, and so he has a kind of conflict, a, an an agony is where we get our English word. Intense struggle, intense conflict. And then thirdly, you remember Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, a fellow servant, saluteth you. He's always laboring fervently, same word, agonizomai, in prayer for you that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So I think we could apply that to Paul. Paul's conflict, his struggle is that he's praying fervently. He's agonizing in prayer. Do you ever agonize in prayer because of such a deep concern over someone or something that it causes you to cry out to God almost in agony and plead with God? We should agonize in prayer, shouldn't we? We see lost souls. We see people departing from Christ. We see people who have no love for Christ. Does it not break your heart? Would you not agonize in prayer over such a person? Paul would agonize in prayer, even over the churches, because he was so deeply concerned of what error would do to the church that he struggled. He had great conflict. He wanted the church to know what a great conflict. But here, this word adds another element to his conflict, which means Paul was having a contest with fear, and anxiety. Paul was struggling with anxiety. Now, before you draw a judgment or conclusion, Paul's anxiety was not sinful. As some of our anxiety, perhaps most of our anxiety, can be sinful because it's a lack of faith in Christ. I do not say that to demean you or myself, but just a reality of the Bible. When anxiety is sinful... When we are gripped with fear, Jesus would tell us why that's the case. He would say, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth or rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, lay up for yourselves, accumulate, gather treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, neither do thieves break in and steal, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And two verses later in Matthew 6, he says this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be fearful about tomorrow, which means what according to Jesus? This is how sinful anxiety works. 
We start laying up treasures on earth. And the reason we're laying them up is because we expect those treasures to do something because that's where our heart is. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So our heart so treasures things on earth, we begin to accumulate it, we begin to stockpile it. And the whole point of Jesus' imagery of raw uh, rust and moth and thieves is just simply to say, it's not going to work. You know that, don't you? It can never do what your heart treasures it and thinks it's going to do, ever. Whether it be possessions or people or activities or things, it's not going to happen in any full way. And then when it does happen, we serve the master of mammon or people or idols, and we're enslaved to them because we expect, because we treasure them, that they're going to deliver on what our heart wants out of the treasure and then anxiety comes. Why? Because someone starts to get in the way of that pursuit. And you get angry. And you get frustrated. And you have to control the treasure because you've so put your hope in the treasure that you expect the treasure, the person, the activity, the possession to deliver on your hope for happiness that now when it's not performing, you are so mad. And you're fearful. You know that anger can rise out of anxiety because we become control freaks. Anybody ever struggle with that? As a parent, you probably know a little bit about that, right? So we put our treasure in a box. You can't touch this. And we we put controls on it because in the box is the happiness we want. And we're so afraid. We're so anxious. We begin to control it. Another way it masters us, we give ourselves to it fully. We give our whole lives fully to that treasure. And we pursue it. And we go for it. And we neglect the service of God. Do you want to know why? Because our heart treasures. It treasures it so much that God has put on a shelf. God has put aside. God has put somewhere. And said, well, we'll get back to you later, God. And that gives God no pleasure. Because it's not going to work. All right, now that interlude is for this point of that Paul. What's Paul's anxiety here? Is Paul treasuring people above that which he should? Is he gripped with fear over the church because he, he treasures the church in a way that's not right? No, Paul's treasure is the supremacy of Christ. He has counted everything lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord, and he's counting them lost. How do you know that? His suffering proves it, does it not? For to me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He embraces suffering as a minister because he values Christ. So his, his anxiety is Godward that means what? It moves other center. It is really loving the church with this that kind of anxiety because his deep concern is they'll be moved from the hope of the gospel. And therefore his anxiety over the church Godward and Christward is that they're moving with a miscalculation concerning the supremacy of Christ and they're going to be moved away by Gnosticism and the Jewish heresy of legalism and asceticism, even with the religious clothing. He's deeply concerned that they stand fast in Christ. So Paul's anxiety here is not sinful, it's God-honoring because Christ as the object means you're good is Paul's 
ultimate aim. And when Christ is aimed at for His glory and supremacy, your love toward others will always find its proper place in proper orbit around the gravitational pull of the supremacy of Christ. So Paul is in great conflict. And his conflict is good. His anxiety is good. And if that's our kind of anxiety over one another, that is good because it has Christ as its aim. So, how does Paul expect, knowing this anxiety, knowing this great concern and care for the church, is to have the impact of verse 2, so that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. You know something about knitting? I know nothing about knitting except well, I've seen people do it. I could look it up on Google and I know they use these two rods of sort to create interlacing connecting loops. And they do it pretty fast and you can't tell what they're doing, but they, they knit a, a, a quilt of sorts or a throw blanket. We have those in our house. I love I, You throw them on yourself and you get warm. And it's all these interconnected loops, interlacing of loops that bind together that produce a whole piece of fabric, a unified whole that serves a purpose. So Paul wants their hearts to be comforted and being comforted, they would be knit together in love. Now the word comforted can mean just that, comfort or exhortation, but usually behind the word it it expresses the idea of courage, strength to keep going, especially in conflict or battle. You can hear this word being used that way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul again was having anxiety. Now the word is not used there, but you can hear it in his voice. In Colossians 3.1, or 1 Thessalonians rather, he would say, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we couldn't endure it anymore, we thought it good that I be left in Athens alone. Now that's not good. The apostle Paul, it was not good to be by himself. He was a hunted man, and he traveled in missionary teams. He was so deeply concerned for the church at Thessalonica that he said, look, brothers, you've got to go. Go, Timothy, back to Thessalonica. And so he sent Timothy. He says, our brother, our fellow laborer, our minister in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Paul's concern in that letter is the comfort of the church at Thessalonica. Paul's concern here is that their hearts might be comforted. Not like the kind of comfort we think of, to feel kind of good and sit back in a nice lounging chair or, or sit back in a, in a, uh, on a sofa with, with a drink and, and take a nap. Now the comfort here you can see in Thessalonica was one of of confirming, strengthening, and enduring in battle. And this is how he says it in the next verse of that letter. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. For you were appointed thereunto. What's the comfort Paul wants the church to have that he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica 
to see how they're doing, to establish and comfort them. He doesn't want them to be moved by the afflictions that they're enduring. So what is the word comfort? How is that comforting in affliction? Because he wants them to be rooted, established, strengthened. He wants them to be like he wrote in Colossians 1.23, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. He doesn't want the church at Thessalonica to be moved by afflictions. Now, if you read two verses later, Paul repeats himself, and he says, Therefore, when we can no longer forbear, we sent Timothy to know about your faith, lest the tempter having tempted you and our labor be in vain. The great tempter, the devil, takes what God appoints for good and uses it for evil. The very same circumstances that God has appointed for your good, the devil comes in and takes those circumstances as an occasion to move you, and he uses it for evil. That's the two great dividing purposes between what God does in the appointment of your afflictions and your pain, and they are appointed, and what the devil does in the same appointment, which often the appointment includes the devil, like it did with Job. So Paul's desire for comfort is that they not be moved from Christ, which pain can often do, can it? But in Colossians, what would move them? pleasure or thinking that something beyond Christ could do them more or better than Christ can. So the devil, he doesn't care, pain or pleasure. He'll use both. So Paul wants us to be comforted, which means to be strengthened for the battle against the temptation and allurement of pleasure and the temptation to leave Christ in great pain, great affliction, by knowing it's been appointed. So when Timothy gets back to Paul, and Paul hears about the church at Thessalonica, he rejoices because he heard of their faith and their love. Now what's the connection with Colossians? The comfort that Paul brings to the church at Thessalonica works itself out and is seen in their being knit together in love. In other words, the church at Thessalonica is still knitting a beautiful quilt, a throw blanket to the glory of God called love. They have not been divided by the affliction. They have been united in the affliction in a way that bring God's, uh, brings God glory because of the comfort. So Paul wants this comfort of his conflict to bring about the same kind of knitting. Now, how does that work? How does Paul's conflict do that? Because Paul's conflict, his anxiety, is the embodiment of the love of Christ. Paul is not saying, if you can see something about me, that's really going to encourage you to love one another. He wants their hearts to be knit together with his own heart, and then their hearts to be knit together in love. And by telling them about his great conflict, his labor, his suffering, his striving, his praying for them, is the embodiment of the love of Christ. We even see this often on a human level, don't we? A first responder makes it to the scene of a flood or a fire, or a car accident. 
And the first responder rescues the person from the burning car or the burning house, rescues the person out of the flood. And what happens? Just in a human way, there's a bond that's created between them. I've read of people that have regular visits with one another because there's a bond of friendship that was created just through human beings apart from Christ because of the love, the care, the concern that a person had to risk his life in the rescue of another. Paul has given his life for the churches and even for the people he has not seen face to face. He is in prison. He's never seen them. But his imprisonment and all that he's going through was to get them to understand the full assurance and to know the mystery of the gospel of Christ, the Gentiles and Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's his great concern. And Paul expects his love for them, the embodiment of it, incarnating Christ to one another to produce a bonding and a knitting together in love. You remember the words in our study of 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul in verse 10 tells the church who despised Paul's suffering because they were going after the elite apostles who were looked good, spoke good. Were revered by people because of their outward looks and their abilities. And here Paul, this suffering apostle, who was, speech was despised, nothing apparently of any bodily presence to look at. He looked weak according to his own words. And yet he would say in 2 Corinthians 4.10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also might be manifest or seen in us. What is it that could be seen about Jesus Christ in you or in Paul? How was he always dying? Carrying the the dying of the Lord Jesus in his body. Well, he tells us in that context. In his trouble on every side. In being perplexed. In being persecuted and thrown down. Four words he uses. And he uses that participle. Always bearing in the body. Those things. In his conflict, in his suffering... In his struggles, he's always bearing in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. So that through that dying, he's also putting on display the life of the Lord Jesus. How is that displayed through Paul's life? Well, he said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power of the treasure may be God's and not ours. How is the power of the supremacy of Christ's love embodied in Paul in his conflict and suffering. First, he doesn't give way to it. He doesn't succumb to the suffering. How is that possible? Only because of the treasure of Christ. Paul did not have that ability to keep going. He was just a man as we are. But it was the treasure of the love of Christ and the gospel that he wanted to be shown displayed through his suffering. And it was because he kept going. So he says, not distressed, not in despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. Always manifesting the life of Christ. The love of Christ and the power of his love in Paul was shining through a broken clay-like vessel in conflict and struggle. 
that he expected the church to see his conflict and not say, Paul, you're such a great man, but Paul, we see the love of Christ in you. We see all that's coming to us through your pen and through your suffering as the treasure of the gospel, bleeding through the broken cracks and suffering of Apostle Paul. So he concluded, death is at work in us, but life in you. He was bringing life and love to the church. Beloved, as our hearts are comforted together and being knit together in love, we are bringing life and love to one another. We're bringing the life of Christ and the love of Christ embodied and incarnate. We are not bringing our own lives. You don't want to see that in me. In fact, I've seen enough of that in me. Have you seen enough in yourself? So Paul says, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you because it's for you. And how is it for you except the love of Christ through Paul first gives them strength to keep going. Gives them strength to stand against the false doctrine and errors. And gives them strength that their hearts knit with Paul's and knit together is producing a beautiful quilt of lives that are interlooped and interlaced, not divided and separated. That's what Paul is after here. And Paul says that being knit together does what? Keeps you from a miscalculation. Unity helps keep us together from miscalculations. Alone, separate, you and I will likely make the miscalculation. Divided, disunified, not participating means what? You will likely make the miscalculation or perhaps you already have. And you're making a wrong assessment of Christ into thinking, there's just not enough here. There's just not enough in that. Life is so much more. Yes, it is, but it's more in Christ. Next, the question is, how does then being comforted and being knit together yield understanding and acknowledgement? Acknowledgement is that word we've seen, epignosis, which means a deeper, accurate knowledge of the mystery of God, of the Father and of Christ, which includes verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That riches of understanding includes the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that acknowledging or knowing the mystery means knowing Christ in Him is everything. Right? That's what Paul wants them to understand. And when you understand that about the fullness of God in you, what do you do to error? You're all wrong. I don't need what you're peddling. Do you know how often we are carried away by every wind of doctrine because we think we need what the peddler is peddling? It's so plausible. And it's misleadingly attractive, even in a church context. And beloved, today in our culture, there are many false teachers under the canopy of Christianity that are giving doctrines misleadingly attractive and attaching them to Christ. And we need to do what Paul says in verse 8, beware lest anyone takes you captive by philosophy and vain deceit. What's so bad about philosophy? Nothing, but the word means love of wisdom. We don't love wisdom. That's the problem. We don't love our knowledge. You ever met a person like that? You could just tell. What they were in love with is that they knew so much. And Paul says, 
what in 1 Corinthians 8, 1? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge just makes you proud. I love wisdom. That'll lead you captive away from Christ. So look at 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll see an example with this church how being knit in love produces more understanding and knowledge. And when this love is lacking, and in its place is what? Biting, devouring, division. We don't get more knowledge and understanding. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto, to this point, you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. Why? The milk is referring to the basic principles, elementary things that they should have gone past. The meat would be the more accurate, deeper epignosis of God. And Paul says, you're, you're incapable. So the question is, was it an intellectual incapacity? Right? Somebody says, I, I, don't, I don't really get anything out of preaching. Well, that could be my fault. It could be Titus's fault. Or it could be your fault. Because you don't know how to drink milk. You're drinking milk the wrong way. So Paul says, the reason you're incapable, now in this case, it, it was never Paul's fault, at, at least what we read in the Bible, because he was inspired. So what, what was their inability? Verse 3, For you are yet carnal, for as there is among you envying, strife, and divisions. That's why I'm giving you milk. Because what I'm giving you is being used as an occasion of self-love. Not knitting love. Self-love. Selfish ambition. Self-seeking envy that, that leads to a fractured body. Now Everybody was there in the church. Nobody left. But they're divided. Their inability was owing to their spiritual appetite. They weren't digesting the milk of God's Word in such a way that it was nourishing the body so that they could grow from mashed up beans and milk to pieces of meat. Meat here is not some deep knowledge that's hard to understand. It's just moving on to what? Understanding, in our verse, full assurance of understanding and the acknowledgement of the mystery. See, knitting in love is producing that. The church at Corinth can't move to meet because of self-love. Who would have thought? When we are coming under the sound of God's Word with self-love, we never make it to meet and understanding and knowledge. How are we to drink the milk 
where it knits together in love? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. He would say, as newborn babes. Now, in that verse, that's a good way to be a babe. Here, it's not good, right? As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the Word so that you may grow in understanding and knowledge. So drink the milk in such a way that you desire it, you drink it, and then you taste it, and you enjoy it. Because that's the metaphors that Peter uses. If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming, why are you coming? Because the milk is so good and satisfying. And it nourishes And it assimilates through the body. And I'm strengthened by it. And then you start building as a church. What fractures a church that there's no building through spiritual sacrifices is selfish sacrifices. Which we all have to struggle against, don't we? Every week, there's a struggle. And the struggle is not always time, is it? The struggle is my affections. Do I have any affection for the Word of God? Do I have any affection for relationship with God in prayer? Or have my affections been drawn away to another activity which removes me from the service of God? That is going to produce division and God is not going to work through carnality, envy, divisions, and selfish ambition to produce a full assurance of understanding and the acknowledgement of the mystery in whom is hid all the treasures of wisdom in Christ. Which means what? The church at Corinth is susceptible. And in fact, what happened? They were drawn away by error. Why? They needed more. They needed more than just a gospel. So Paul says, I came not unto you with enticing words of man's what? Wisdom. So Paul has to start with milk all over again. If he had given the meat, what would they have done with the meat? They would have used it for more envy, more strife, and more division. It wasn't intellectual. The problem was a heart problem. It was an affection problem. And so their affection had been drawn away to attaching themselves to different preachers and trying to get the one-upmanship on one another rather than their attachment to the Christ in whom is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the second answer is because our affections for God is what's going to produce the capacity to understand more about God. And when our affections are drawn away to other things and we have no desire, no affection for God, it's just dry, isn't it? It's not going to happen. And then what happens? We are are led apart from one another. So Paul wants them to be knit together in love. He wants them to be comforted and knit together in love so that that would lead them to the full assurance of understanding and to the acknowledgement of the mystery, which in Christ means what? Everything we need is there. Everything we we need is in Christ. And then thirdly, the third question we pose, and this is where we'll end this morning. How do these words keep us from being beguiled? And we'll use verse 5 for this question. Paul says in verse 5, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So what that means is at this point, the false teachers haven't beaten the door down. 
there's order, there's steadfastness. So there is a knitting together in love that Paul says we need to keep that going. That needs to happen because it's going to help you not to make the miscalculation and open the doors for the error to come in. Now these are two military words, most agree. The word order means arrangement, like, like a frontline arrangement or arrange, uh, arrangement of troops. It's used in 1 Corinthians 14, about the 40th verse, where Paul says, Let all things be done decently and in order. What was missing at the church at Corinth? Well, we know the spiritual gifts. It was not decorous. It was not arranged well. Everybody decided at the same time they wanted to exercise their spiritual gift. Why? Envy, strife, division. What was missing? Chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after love. And desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Love was missing. Not all love. They were in love with themselves. Do you struggle with that? We do, don't we? Chapter 13 is positioned perfectly with the spiritual gifts because their disorder was owing to a lack of love and they were still drinking milk, but they didn't know how to drink it. If we don't have love, it profits us nothing. We're just clanging cymbals and noise, Paul would say. The other word, steadfast, means to be firm, to be stable, but also means a solid front. So if we take the two military terms, and an orderly arrangement and a solid front, like a solid front line in a battle, which is very, very critical. In ancient Greek warfare, the solid front was called a phalanx. Perhaps we most often think of this formation from the Romans, but the Greeks used a phalanx where they would have a front line of soldiers and they would interlock or knit, I'll say, their shields together. It's called the shield wall. It's called a phalanx. It was critical to have these soldiers in that formation. Whenever the enemy made contact with the phalanx, they would push in a unified, coordinated effort to keep the enemy from making its way into the ranks. It was said that this phalanx produced among the men a camaraderie and a shared purpose that was very effective in that solid front. Now, I don't know if Paul is drawing from a Greek phalanx or not, but the word steadfast means a solid front. What is this solid front that knits us together? That Paul says, when this knitting is together, it's going to keep the enemy from making it through the ranks. It's called love. It's the love of Christ between us. It's the love of Christ that will be shared in a communion this afternoon. It's that love that without it, understanding the depths of it, understanding the richness of His love and who He is, is going to help us form the shields, the knitting of love that's going to help us from the miscalculation. Right? What happens if they're together, but the shields are not knit together. They're not overlapping. The enemy makes its way between the shields. 
It's like a deck that's just been recently finished. And all the, the decking boards are there and it looks nice, but one thing has been missing, the bonding material called nails or screws. So you walk on the deck and I don't know if this could happen. If you hit the end of the board, maybe it pops up and hits you in the head. But more importantly, when, the, when, a, when a strong storm comes, a storm of error, a storm of Gnosticism, a storm of any kind, it hits the deck. And what looked like nicely laid decking boards, fastened, joined, compacted, knit, and driven, becomes chaos. And the boards are thrown in every single direction by every wind of doctrine because they didn't have the bond of Colossians chapter 3 and verse, verse 14. And above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the glue, it's the mortar, it's the nail, it's the screws that hold all the planks together, that knit the shields side by side, that Paul says, I'm saying this. Because when this is happening in verse 2, it's going to form a solid front that keeps the enemy from encroaching on the church because the church understands in a unified way we have all in Christ. In Christ. And so that answers the third question. And just to close on this verse, Paul uses this phrase in verse 19 of chapter 2, and I'll just read verse 18 as well. Let no man beguile you, not the same word, but to judge against you. And so Paul is still concerned about being taken captive, beguiled, cheated, miscalculated. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary or false humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head. So this, these teachers do not have a grip on the head. They don't have a grip on his supremacy in chapter 1. They don't have a grip on his love. They don't have possession of the head. From which, Paul would say, all the body by joints and bands having nourishment supplied or ministered and knit together. In what? He doesn't say it here. Love increaseth with the increase of God. We know it's love because the parallel verse in Ephesians 4.16 says, with some of the same wording, edifying itself, the church is edifying itself in love. How does the increase of God come to the church? Joints and bands, nourishment supplied, solid front. How solid is this church? Only as solid is our love in Christ as we possess the head. Now look at this from a negative standpoint. If you're not holding the head, what happens? The joints and bands have no supply, no nourishment. Now there's still joints and bands. They're, they're there, but they're not fulfilling the purpose of a joint and band. They're just there, maybe on a Sunday. The joints and bands have no nourishment supplied. Therefore, they are not knit together. Paul's making the point from the negative side. These men who are false teachers, 
They, they don't have hold of the head, therefore they, they have nothing supplied, therefore they are not knit together, therefore the church does not increase with the increase of God, which is love. Love. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. May the church at Heritage not be beguiled, not one of us, because we are so knit together in love with a great concern for each other that we love each other, we pray for each other, we are concerned about each other, we have anxiety over each other. We pray for each other. We're willing to count the cost for one another. All because, not of our worth, not of mine or yours, but because in Christ is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in body. And in Christ you have everything. May God help us to understand more and more the reality of union with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We first confess where our love is shallow and where we at times can be just like the church at Corinth. We confess it. We know it, Lord. We are tempted with our own self-love. We are tempted to be drawn away and moved either by afflictions or by the pleasures the world offers and trying to suggest to us that we need so much more than what we have. As if to say that, God, that you can't provide what we need, that you're not enough. And so, Lord, forgive us of that sin and all the ways we've lived that out in our lack of service to you and all the ways we've lived that out in being drawn away to other things rather than the spiritual habits of prayer and the word and love. And so, Lord, do a work in this church where we would be more knit together in love. We would be rooted and grounded. We would be built up together. We would be abounding in thanksgiving and that we would be rooted in the faith that we have been taught. And this would work itself out in the embodiment of Christ's love, that Christ's love would be incarnate in such a way that it would be seen and known, and that Christ would be more treasured for the great treasure that He is. Make this a reality. We thank You, Lord, for Your love and hiding us in the depths of Your love and covering us with Your hand as we sang. But bless us to know more of the riches of the full assurance of understanding more of the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of Father and of Christ, more of Christ in whom is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray.